1: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. As part of a recent event at CSU, I spoke with former NPR journalist Lulu Garcia Navarro about the current state of journalism.
0: Things are not only polarized, but I feel like they're fracturing in ways that we haven't seen before. In today's
1: show, we'll hear excerpts from that conversation. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado State University held its annual International Symposium last month. As part of that, I had the opportunity to moderate a keynote discussion on politics, polarization, and the state of journalism, both here and abroad, with former NPR journalist and Weekend Edition Sunday host, Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Today, we're going to listen back to excerpts from that discussion— Pandemic concerns meant the talk was virtual over Zoom rather than in person at CSU, and in a way, that's fitting because it's impossible to talk about journalism and trust in the media without the pandemic factoring in somehow. There's a lot to unpack in the title of the discussion, How We Collectively Lost Our Minds, a Journalist Trying to Cover Today's World. So I started by asking her what was behind that title and the insight it can give us into what it's like in the field of journalism right now.
0: The title was sort of inspired by what I have been seeing in the United States and across the world, really, at the moment. I mean, we are at a moment where things are not only polarized, but I've Feel like they're fracturing in ways that we haven't seen before. And, you know, that certainly was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic has really accelerated that. You know, I just went down to Spotsylvania County um, in Virginia and sat in on a school board meeting and have been talking to people there about their feelings surrounding, you know, the very contentious issues around schools. And it was interesting to me you know, as I was listening to all these arguments, um, just how intimate things feel now that the, that these fractures that we've been facing in our society now just feel like they're on our, on our doorstep. Um, You know, we might now disagree with people that we might have agreed with before over things like masks, over things like vaccines. Um, You know, you don't really know anymore, which side of an issue someone's going to fall on. I feel like when I came back from Brazil and landed in the United States in 2017, it was just at the beginning of the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And what was so surprising to me was um, that this deep polarization that you see in other countries was evident here, but people have sort of cleaved in two. They were sort of pro-Trump and anti-Trump. You know, they were divided on issues, big issues like immigration and race. And now it's like, everyone is divided on these very, very small issues that are very close to them, you know, that are about the way their children are being raised, then they're about, you know, how and what we put in our bodies. And, um, And it's no longer about, you know, Democrat versus Republican necessarily, our tribes are getting a lot smaller.
1: Yeah, the whole polarization today feels very different from the traditional red versus blue, conservative versus liberal that we might have thought of in the past? Has that become more evident in the pandemic?
0: Yes. I mean, I think um, one of the reasons I I wanted to sort of talk about us collectively losing our minds isn't to say that all these concerns aren't rooted in something that's real that we're feeling. Um, But I also think that we're in a place right now where you know, we are overwhelmed, you know, we are overwhelmed by having to do another zoom symposium (laughs) and having to take care of our kids that might be quarantined from home and having to figure out how to navigate this very, very contentious period in, um, our politics, and that's not only in the United States, we're seeing echoes of that absolutely everywhere. And there's this, you know, sort of big battle playing out about how we want to live our lives. But the way that that manifests, you know, inside our homes and within our groups of people that we interact with, is having all these different ramifications. And so, you know, as a journalist, navigating that trying to sort of illuminate that is the is the real work. And, what is fascinating to me is that a lot of that sort of um, inspiration just comes from the stuff that I'm experiencing and the stuff that I see within my own family and, you know, the divisions that I see play out amongst the people that I know. And in your work
1: right now, you mentioned um, Spotsylvania and kind of digging into what's going on with school board races and these very contentious meetings that are happening. How do you see this play out around the kitchen table, for lack of a better word, in America.
0: Oh, my goodness. I mean, I mean, every, the, what's great for journalists at this particular period is that I could talk to anyone watching this right now and I could say, Tell me a story about how this is playing around at your kitchen table. And you would tell me a great story um, because <laughs> we all know it, right? This is why we're all collectively losing our minds. We all feel it. We all feel these pressures and they're having these different ramifications in different ways. And so, you know, I mean, one example is, is, you know, one of the people that I was talking to down in Spotsylvania and, you know, she's a young girl, she's a high school senior. Um, and you know, she loves books and all of a sudden she finds the people that are overseeing her education, talking about banning books and books that are you know, specifically about things have to do with her own identity, but she comes from a very conservative family. And so that is causing all sorts of tensions within her family because she falls on one side of an issue and her parents, you know, or at least her father falls on a different side of an issue. And so, you know, you're just seeing this, you know, people are really trying to figure this out in all sorts of different ways. And what was really interesting to me about Spotsylvania in particular is that this is a conservative county, went for Trump by 52%. And um And so sitting at that school board meeting, I couldn't tell you necessarily what people's ideology was by what they were saying um, because actually the fault lines again are so much more narrow. Um, So you have people who would self-identify as conservative but would say, I differ with you on this issue and I am gonna really fight you on it. And so we're not seeing what we're used to seeing in America, this kind of very even split of like, Liberal, conservative, um, red, blue—we're now seeing these fractures in all sorts of different directions, and it's causing, you know, difficulties. I mean, I went to go have dinner the other night with um, friends of mine, and they would be—they would say that they fall on the more liberal side of the spectrum, and they were really concerned about issues around critical race theory and what was happening in public schools. And this is not something that traditionally you would think was necessarily an issue that was going to be uh, resonant in the same way to people who might perceive themselves as liberal, but it is. And so I have found all this fascinating. I have found it really interesting to see that people's identity at the moment is changing. The way people um, feel like they know who they are and the issues that are important to them are changing. And I think that that's gonna open up the political landscape in very complicated ways um, in the next election. And
1: I think what's interesting too, is we can think about issues and where we might fall on a particular side of an issue, but it seems really complicated right now is this truth. that What is the truth, capital T? And and how do we kind of get to what is the truth? And how does this intersect with where journalism is and what journalism is doing right
0: now? Mm. I mean, so journalism is in a crisis. Um, I'm not saying anything that someone um, doesn't know. And, you know, we chatted a little bit about this, right? Um, There's often this thing that pollsters do, and they'll come to the, the public and they'll say, do you trust the media? And then you'll see this, you know, absolutely. We do not trust the media and it's been going down and down and down. And then everyone wrings their hands and goes, oh my God, look, they don't mm. trust the media. This is going to damage democracy. And I think actually it's a much more complicated picture than that. I think what we're seeing is that if you asked people, do you trust Fox news? And they were Fox news viewers. They'd say, Over 80%, I trust Fox News. And if you said to someone who's a reader of the New York Times, um, do you trust the New York Times? Do you trust NPR if they listen to NPR? And they'd say, you know, overwhelmingly, yes, I trust. But if you say the media, you're always imagining like this other group um, that you don't necessarily trust or believe in. And so I think that that's really part of um, some of the complexities that we're seeing because, you know, Media is just one portion of a wider crisis that I think we're seeing in this country, which has to do with institutions. People, and this is on both sides of the political spectrum, are seeing institutions not responding to the needs that they have. You know, they're seeing them not be there in the way that they feel like they should be. And so now you're having a crisis in. All these, you know, all these different institutions, because for many different reasons, people don't feel that they're responsive, and the media, quote unquote, um, is part of that. I would want to make a distinction between the fact-based media, what I consider the fact-based media, mm-hmm. the media that actually has guardrails, the media that actually, um, if you get something wrong, there are repercussions for that. Um, you know, there are editorials. There, you know, um, you have to have an editor's note, a correction, and then organizations that actually are purveyors of opinion and misinformation and those are two different types of media landscapes um but unfortunately what we're seeing more and more is that there's you know less people don't understand the difference um you know there's a massive mistrust and i think that that you know is that connection with our audiences is, you know, harder and harder to maintain because people, if they just read one thing that they don't like, you know, if they just like, I didn't want to hear that voice, or you asked a question in a way that I don't think, you know, was respectful, or you didn't ask the question that I think you should have asked. You weren't pushing back enough in the way that I think that you should. I know that you probably get this all the time, You know, you get a lot of people coming at you and saying, like, they see it as part of a wider narrative that somehow the media has failed them, that it isn't doing its job.
1: That's the first part of my conversation with journalist Lulu Garcia Navarro. In just a moment, we'll hear how she has seen attitudes toward journalists shift both here and abroad, and what journalism can do to regain the public's trust. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Lulu Garcia-Navarro spent years as an international correspondent with several media outlets, including NPR. I had the chance to talk with her virtually in February as part of this year's international symposium at Colorado State University. We're listening to excerpts from that conversation. I, I want step back to your time as a a foreign correspondent. Um, Many of us here this afternoon know you from your work with NPR, um, but also before that, as a journalist, you covered news in the Middle East and in Latin America. In your years covering those regions, I'm wondering how you have seen attitudes toward the media shift?
0: Yeah, I think this is part of a global trend. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a bunch of stuff going on. I mean, first of all, you know, we are seeing globally, a big ideological battle between um, autocracies and democracies. And so there is this big sense that, you know, is a democracy really the best way to govern? And I think in the, if, if you think about it in the pandemic, you know, you'll see this a lot where, governments that are autocracies might have weathered the pandemic better, right? Um, Because they have a compliant population. They're able to enforce rules and regulations much more forcibly. Um, And so, whereas democracies by and large have seen a lot of upheaval. I mean, there's of course distinctions to this, but one would be hard pressed to say, well, that shows that a, that an autocracy is better than a democracy if you live in a democracy, you know, and you, and you uphold that. But there's this big ideological split about how the world is shaking out and which sort of version is gonna prevail. And so within that, you know, the media has a really big role um, to play because we are, you know, at its best independent. We are trying to speak truth to power. We are trying to investigate abuses. We act on behalf of the public, right? When we talk about the public's right to know, when we, in the media, that's what we're doing. We're talking about the public's right to know. We are acting for you. We're not doing it for us. Um, We always weigh these things, right? When we think about um, something that's very sensitive, maybe state secrets, we think, how important is this for the public to know? or how important is this you know for state security to be kept private and so these things are very complicated and we and and we think about it we think about them and we debate them a lot and so when we think about this sort of media landscape that we're involved in at the moment i would say that the dire situation that we see in the united states in which local news has been decimated in which there's a, a huge mistrust of media organizations in which we see some media organizations thriving like the New York Times, you know, like the Washington Post, like NPR, but by and large, you know, a lot of other media organizations sort of withering on the vine. Um, we're seeing that play out all, in all sorts of different places in, 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 in the world. You know, if you look at Brazil, if you look at Mexico, um, if you look uh, at the Middle East, you know, you are seeing versions of this happen everywhere where journalists, are no longer seen as a sort of agents of democracy, but they're seen as threats. And in places like Mexico, they're being killed in huge numbers, um, and in other places, they're being jailed in huge numbers. And it's a and it's you know a crisis of freedom of information, and that's the way that it should be framed, and that's the way that I often try to discuss it. You know, it's not that this is a crisis of journalism; this is a crisis of freedom of information. You know, that is what happens when you kill or silence journalists. What you're trying to do is stop the flow of information to the public, and it's very dangerous. Right. I mean, at
1: least here in the US, freedom of the press still exists. It's still a thing, but it does feel more difficult to get out there and do that job with this growing mistrust in the institution.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, I face it a lot, you know, when you're out talking to people, um, especially, um, you know, groups that have, uh, you know, now sort of ideological mistrust of, of the media. It is very hard to sort of break through that and to portray yourself as an, as an honest broker uh, because people feel, and, and sometimes rightly so, that we have not, we have failed to sort of um, be transparent on occasion. Uh, we have failed to represent their views. Um, if you think about, you know, traditionally communities of color, you know, the mainstream media, Um, has failed, you know, to really uh, reflect the concerns of those communities and to sort of, instead of going in and just reporting about them, report for them. And that's a real big distinction. And many groups feel that way. Um, Many groups feel that they have been let out outside of the traditional narratives and that their concerns and realities are not properly reflected. And so that just feeds this mistrust. This feeds a sense of like, you know, that the media is an other as opposed to a representative of us all.
1: Mm, Right. And we kind of talked about how that affects the views of the media, but have you seen attitudes toward the truth shift in some of these other regions, maybe where a little more authoritarian rule is there or taking over?
0: I mean, define truth. I mean, that's, that's the big, that's the big thing that we struggle with, right. Um, Mm -hmm. where we're trying to sort of, I always use the word truth. I always say like, I'm trying to get at an approximation of the truth. Um, but within that there are multitudes. Um, I remember when I used to report from Iraq and there would be, um, a bombing, an explosion, uh, some sort of catastrophe. And we would arrive and you would have one person say, it was an American helicopter and it just fired a missile onto this facility and all these people were killed and would just be telling you this as if it was truth, And then the next person would come and they would say, no, it was um, a truck that came in and and was loaded with explosives and blew up. And there'd be another person said, no, it was actually, a gas canister um, that was, you know, not stored in the correct way and it blew up. And so when you go into a situation like this, you know, what is the truth? What is the thing that actually happened that you are going to come away with and trying to piece together this, this idea of, of, of the truth. And so of course it starts with facts and there is a thing that actually happened in that, in those circumstances, often you can see either if there was a, the remains of a missile or if there's a crater or if that, you know, there's different things that you can do with your eyes and ears to sort of determine what the truth is and what the facts of the case are. That becomes a lot harder when you're trying to parse together, you know, things to do with the way people feel about an issue, you know, the way that they um, like what is the truth behind the way people feel about schools in America and what they should be doing? What is the truth behind that? You know, and so that then is about the way people are interacting with this moment. They've, you know, they can they can back it up and say, "Look, I found these books. These books, you know, have you know touch on subjects like pedophilia. That means that they're indoctrinating my children. You know, to to be." pedophiles. I'm using an example that isn't true, but like, you know, and so I'm giving you what I consider to be the facts to show my case to be true. And so I think that's where we really struggle at this moment um, to kind of parse this through because all of us are living in these very different realities, these very different circumstances, and the things that we feel are going to you know bolster our arguments, um, you know, are different for different people. I come from a politically divided family, um, you know, and yeah. there is a huge chasm between the way the different sides see things. I mean, the thing they always agree on is that they hate journalists, so that's good. <laughs> but beyond that, there's a lot of really big tensions over. How to engage in the world. And now we've seen that play out in all sorts of interesting ways. Just getting together over Christmas was really fraught. Who was vaccinated? Who wasn't vaccinated? Who was willing to get tested if they weren't vaccinated? Um, You know, all these different things now are no longer just sort of like speculative. it's like actually your decision is going to impact my life in ways that it might not have before. And so now this idea of truth and what the reality is um you know has become much more loaded right And so if my sister just says I don't want to be vaccinated and I don't believe in masking and wants to come to my to you know the family dinner with my 80 year old mother, whereas before I could say, oh, you know, you believe a thing that I don't believe, that's fine. We don't, you know, you, you have the right to believe it. And, and she would, this is a hypothetical as well, but she would say, I have the right to believe, well, why don't you just respect my opinion? Now, of course, what you're doing is, I believe is impacting me. And, and she believes what I'm doing is impacting her. And so now, right? This thing that was this big thing that was out there is inside our family, is inside our home and is causing a huge amount of tension in a way that we, we wouldn't have seen before you know, we talked about the eroding trust
1: in the news media as an institution. Do you have a sort of prescription for regaining trust here in the U.S.?
0: I think that there is no magic thing that I can say that is going to regain trust. We're all ambassadors. We're all sort of, um, as journalists, we're all trying to go out there and behave in a way that when I interact with someone, I want to, I want that person to come away from that interaction, feeling like they understood what it was for and why I did it. (laughs) And, and I interact a lot of times with people who have never spoken to a journalist before. And so, you know, I take a lot of time sort of to explain, you know, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. These are your, this is like, you know, this is what on the record means. If you don't want me to actually report on something, you can say, I don't want that to be reported on and I will abide by that, um, you know, if you're not a public figure. And so, you know, I think it's really important to be sort of like radically transparent. Um, And then the other thing I think that's incredibly important is that the, if you're consuming media, anyone who's here, if you're a consumer of the media, make sure that you are, you know, sharing things, and, you know, and talking about things that are actually, you know, healthy for the body politic, you know, that there it's, it's like, it's like the thing that we tell you about, like eating your greens and stuff. It's like, you know, that some of it needs, you know, that it, that if you're passing it on, it needs to be healthy because ultimately everyone here is an editor. Now I'm not an editor anymore. I can write a piece, but you decide who sees it because you are the one sharing it on all these different platforms. And and so you in in a lot of ways are actually an editor. You're a gatekeeper of information in this environment. And so you have a responsibility too to think about the kinds of things that you're sharing and to whom and the impact that they'll have.
1: So we all have that red pen in a sense. (laughs) Before we have to wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you could share, because of course, a lot of us know you from your work with NPR and a lot of us miss you. Um, What are you
0: doing now? Tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah. So I am working um, in New York Times Opinion Audio and we're going to be having um, a show coming out and it's going to be based around people's opinions. And it's kind of going to be about exactly what we're talking about here, which is how do people come to the things Um, And, you know, the tagline is every opinion starts with a story. And so it's going to be about that exact idea of like, what is the, what are the steps that took someone to take them to a place where they believe a certain thing? And it is based around this idea that through empathy and through listening, it might not change our minds about what we think about what the person believes, but at least it will engage us. I find us nowadays, we shut down. ways. We don't want to hear it anymore. And so the goal really is that if you come into it, you're at least going to come away with an understanding that you might not have had before.
1: That was longtime NPR journalist and Weekend Edition host Lulu Garcia Navarro. She's now with New York Times Opinion, where she'll be launching a new audio project very soon. That discussion was recorded during Colorado State University's International Symposium on February 16th. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, many homeowners who were displaced by the Marshall Fire are facing high prices and low inventory in their search for a new place to live. We'll hear how some families are grappling with the challenging housing market and their strong desire to stay put. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Digital editing is handled by Ashley Jeffcoat and Jackie High. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.